Let's pray for a moment. Lord God, as we look into your Gospels in this series, and we're trying to refresh our understanding of Jesus, I pray that you'd give us clarity. Beyond the words that, that I teach, I pray that as we think about, read, rehearse, and meditate on your Scriptures, on these Gospel Scriptures, on these words of Jesus, that you would allow the Spirit of Jesus to break through into our lives. We pray that we would come to know you through Jesus, that we wouldn't just do church, that we wouldn't just rehearse and remember things that we've done before, but that would actually be drawn into the meaning of your words and the way that you would communicate to us today. I pray that we would end up leaving here today not only refreshed in our understanding, but renewed in our commitment to you and reoriented in terms of how we will go about living in the midst of this world. We thank you for doing that through your Holy Spirit, through your Word, which has power, and through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Some of you know that I have taken a few trips to, back to uh, Normandy in order to uh, study and to learn about some of the events of World War II. As the evasion that became known as D-Day got underway on June 6, 1944, a life-changing event involving two U.S. Army medics from the 51st Division took place in a tiny, tiny hamlet known as Angoville au Plain, which is a, a little village near Bayeux, France. During the evening before, members of the 101st Airborne Division had parachuted into that entire region. They were preparing to support the activities that would go on the next day at Utah Beach. Two U.S. Army medics began treating wounded soldiers in the ancient village using the wooden pews in the church in this little hamlet as beds for the soldiers. The two medics were Bob Wright and Ken Moore. They were two conscientious objectors, which meant that they refrained from firing guns, yet they still responded to the call to serve during World War II. They each received only a few days of first aid medical training, and then they landed with the rest of the troops. As the fighting heated up, Wright and Moore set up shop in the Angoville Church and began treating wounded men there. Over the next three days, they worked nonstop. During one of the nights, a German soldier was carried in, and they treated him too. And later that night, two German soldiers entered the church with rifles pointed at the medics. When they saw one of them treating a German soldier, they backed away, and they began to protect the church. All of a sudden, this little church in this tiny little hamlet in a nondescript village in France became a safe haven for wounded men from both armies. Possession of the village would change hands several times over those three days between the German army and the United States army, and Wright and Moore just kept tending to soldiers from each side. As a result of their actions, the village church was spared and several lives were saved. Years later, the people in that village of Angoville au Plain raised money in order to create a stained glass window that would commemorate the service of the, the uh, the men who parachuted in, but also of those two medics. And they kept the, the pews that still bear the evidence of the bloodstains to this day. And they kept alive the story of their two heroes, Wright and Moore, by flying them back to Normandy for their annual memorial. 
Historians noted that Moore and Wright lived rather uneventful lives and had trouble reconciling the way that they had been treated as heroes by the people of this little village of Angleville, Au Plain. One historian told our group that Ken Wright reckoned that the entire reason that God had placed him on this earth was to serve in the way that he did on those three days. Now here's the question that I have. Can you imagine coming to the, re- to the realization that your entire life, the entire reason for your existence was for something that already took place in the past? When I read about John the Baptist and the question that we're going to focus on this morning, I'm reminded of these two medics who served for those three days in June of 1944, just as Ken Wright felt that the purpose of his entire life centered on those three days John the Baptist was pondering the purpose of his life, too, while languishing in King Herod's prison. That sense of purpose, as well as the loneliness and isolation of prison, caused his mind to be racked with the question that he would send to Jesus. This morning, we're continuing a series that I'm calling Rediscovering Jesus, and each week, we are looking at life-changing encounters that people in the Gospels had with Jesus And these encounters force them to change their perspectives about Jesus. I hope that you will find this enlightening. But here's the dangerous thing about this particular series. We may find that we have tried to recreate Jesus and fit him into our preconceived notions or our boxes as well. And what do we do if we find out that is true? So welcome today to North River Church. I'm glad to see all of you who have gathered here with us at our Pembroke campus. Let me also welcome those of you who are watching online today. I believe that Jesus is the most important, most interesting, and most inspirational person who ever lived on this earth. And whether you are just getting started or if you've been with us for decades, we are all learning more and more about Jesus week by week. A wonderful part of our church is with us online, so let me welcome you. Perhaps you're checking us out online today. Uh, Others are watching online because you're traveling, you've moved farther away, you're sick, you needed to stay home today. You're squeezing church in when Sunday morning youth sports limit your ability to join us here in Pembroke. But regardless of where you are and how you are taking part in this service, thank you for making this morning a priority. We'd love to hear back from you. I hope that you'll go to the northriverchurch.org website and and scroll down to plan a visit, and and there you can find the connection link and fill out that connection card, or you can do that here this morning by walking over to the welcome desk right after this service ends. As we learn more about Jesus, our topic this morning is the question from prison. And here's the main idea that I want to get across. Jesus was so clear about his mission that he was willing to be, to be misunderstood in order to reconcile us to God. What can we learn about this question from prison? Here's the first discovery that I made this week. Doubt rises when life doesn't meet our expectations. We find doubts about our purpose, about our lives, and about God, and about Jesus when life doesn't seem to meet the expectations that we have formed. Verse 2 of chapter 11 of of Matthew's gospel starts this way, when John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? This is the question from prison, are you the one, Jesus, or should we expect someone else? 
Oh, this is a huge change from the John that we meet early on in the Gospels. John the Baptist had begun preaching before Jesus began his public ministry, and he was like a cannonball being shot out of the cannon. We don't know exactly how long John had been preaching, but his preaching drew large crowds, and people got excited to hear what he had to say all around Israel. He was preparing them for the arrival of the Messiah. John's ministry was both brash and bold. He called people from all over the land to confess their sins and to be baptized, and all this was new. I doubt followers of the Creator God in Israel were not routinely baptized. This whole thought of uh, adults doing something like this publicly was an affront to many. But working people from all, works, all walks of life began to expect a great working of God. And they marveled when John took on the skeptical Pharisees and even their immoral king. When John saw Jesus standing in line to be baptized, knowing that Jesus was the one, the Messiah, at first he, he objected, thinking that Jesus should baptize him. But only when Jesus insisted that this was part of God's plan did John go ahead with that baptism. While that bold missional preaching had landed John in prison, Herod Antipas, the territorial ruler of Rome had, that Rome had placed over all of Judea, had left his own wife in order to steal his brother's wife. This was an open scandal that was known about in Judea, and John called them both to acknowledge that they'd gone far afoul of God's plan and to repent along with the rest of the people of Israel. Herod had John arrested and thrown in Machaerus, which was an isolated mountaintop dungeon-like castle that Herod had built for his political enemies. And John's ministry was fading while the ministry of Jesus was becoming more and more prominent. This unexpected turn of events led to John's question. John had followed God's call to prepare for the way uh, for the Lord, the Messiah, and he had thrown himself into this role looking forward to this breakthrough from God. But he never expected that he would spend the rest of his days in prison that he would fail to see the full flourishing of all that God was doing to build his kingdom. Languishing in prison, doubt settled in. And you can hear it in his question. Are you the one who was to come? Or should we look for another? John was not only asking for himself, but for all of us, about whether there are sufficient reasons for trusting in Jesus as the Holy One or the Christ or the Messiah of God. All those words mean that he was chosen specifically of God in this one unique role that only he could play. John was realizing that his mission days were over and he hoped that he'd been right about Jesus. And he was overcome by the sense that this wasn't how things were supposed to end out for him. It is entirely possible that, that there are some who are listening to this message who wrestle with doubt just as John did that day. Your career took an abrupt turn and you feel that your best days are behind you. You put your whole life on hold to, to raise and care for a child with special needs. You've tried to be faithful to God, but physical challenges have made your life difficult, far more difficult than you ever imagined it would be. You were bypassed for a promotion because you took a moral stand in your job and you refused to do something unethical that your boss or your company required you to do, and you're paying for it. You were the faithful spouse who was left behind when your partner suddenly left and traded you in for a newer, shinier model. Or your spouse died and left you carrying on alone, wishing you didn't have to go it alone. 
and you woke up this morning and you realize that your life is so far from the plan that God had for you, and you're not sure how to get it back or, or if God still has a place for you on the team, this is when the Bible really connects with us. John is asking this big, huge question for all of us. Jesus, are you the one? Or should we keep looking for somebody else? Notice Jesus' response. Jesus' response was wrapped in the language of his mission. Verse 4 picks this up. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you have seen, what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And then he ends that section by saying, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. How does verse 6, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me, connect with the verses that just talk about all the good things that were happening in Jesus' ministry? Well, Jesus' answer focused on the fulfillment of Scripture. John's calling had come through Isaiah, so this would make sense to John. John had been the fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah 40 that said, A voice of one calling, In the wilderness prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And John had become that voice. So Jesus answered with the language of Isaiah. In Isaiah 35, the prophet wrote, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. He was speaking of the days when the Messiah would come, that these would be the signs. And again in Isaiah 61, it says, The Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news for the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Jesus, in his answer, mixed together these two prophetic scriptures from Isaiah 35 and Isaiah chapter 61. And then he says, go back to John and report what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus, in effect, was telling John the Baptist, I don't have to tell you with a yes or no answer that I'm the one, that I'm the Messiah. The reports about my life and work are the evidence. The reasons why John should take heart, even while he's languishing in that prison, are that the good news of the gospel is going out, that miracles are marking this as the breakthrough work of God, and that God's promises through Isaiah are being fulfilled. Jesus points us to evidence that God keeps his promises whenever we struggle with doubt. And so we have to know the scriptures. We have to go back and look at what God has promised to see how God has fulfilled those promises. But notice what Jesus left out and what he added in his response to John the Baptist. First, he left out any mention of prisoners being released from the darkness as he quoted that scripture from Isaiah. And then he added... Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. John was letting his distant cousin, uh, Jesus was letting his distant cousin John the Baptist know that he would not be released from prison. Indeed, Herodias, the wife of Herod, would soon ask for John's head on a platter. Did you know that's where that phrase comes from? It actually comes from the Gospels. In effect, Jesus was saying, 
The gospel is so good, it's worth giving up your life for it. To John. Jesus was boltering John's courage to see this through to the end. He was saying to John, the gospel is so good, it's worth dying for. And Jesus knew, as he was saying that, that he himself was betting the farm on this declaration. And he called John to stay faithful too. Jesus was so clear about his mission that he was willing to be misunderstood in order to reconcile us with God. Some people would have misunderstood Jesus' response to John the Baptist as uncaring, but Jesus knew the way the whole picture would come together. Here's the third observation that I make. The gospel is so good that Jesus is willing to be misunderstood for us. In verse 11, we pick up more of the story. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not yet risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. He goes on, he says, To what shall I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, We played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, but they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But notice the last line Jesus says, But wisdom is proved right by her actions. Jesus does a number of things here with this response. He says these words as John's disciples are leaving to take the message back, and he's talking to the crowd and to his own disciples. First, he reaffirms the role of John the Baptist. He quotes Isaiah's prophecies about John's role in preparing the way, and he speaks of John's greatness, that there's no one greater yet born. John becomes the bridge figure between all of the prophets that we read in the Old Testament and the dawning of the kingdom of God that came with Jesus. John is that figure who stands right in the middle connecting these two pieces of the whole. And so Jesus calls him the Elijah who was to come. Malachi, the final prophet in the Old Testament, had ended his uh, final chapter with a prediction of the, the, for the, of the coming forth of Elijah, that, that someone like Elijah would return. And Jesus tells us that John had come in the spirit of Elijah, speaking the words of God in the same way that Elijah had done boldly and brashly, turning the hearts of people back to the Lord. And then Jesus warns of violent reactions to the gospel. It says here that the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. Have you ever scratched your head and wonder what that means and what that's really saying? Another English translation, the New Living Translation, I think makes this a bit clearer. This is the way it renders that verse. The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. In other words, there were two differing reactions to the gospel that some people take hold of it and realize regardless of how they've lived and how far they've been from God and how messed up their lives have been, here are these words of hope. If I take a hold of what Jesus is offering, they are violently taking hold of the promise. You don't have to be a goody two-shoes and a perfect person in order to receive the gospel. That's one of the most wonderful things 
that some people who live the most discouraging lives up to that point, when they hear the gospel, realize, here's my opportunity for a whole new life that God has given me. And they take hold of it because they get it. This is my one chance. And then there are other people who hear the gospel, and they're enraged by the gospel. This means that God is going to forgive all the riffraff, and He's going to give people a do-over. And they were opposed because they hadn't come the way of the Pharisees. And they violently rejected Jesus and John the Baptist and the others, and maybe even you and me today. That's what Jesus was talking about, that the gospel of Christ produces the two very different reactions among people. Both a taking hold with glee and a hostility towards the gospel that ramps up at the same time. We see this pattern of simultaneous advance and hostility play out again and again over time and even in our age too. But here's the point. Jesus was willing to be misunderstood. John the Baptist came and he ate strange food and he didn't drink fermented drinks having taken a Nazarite vow. And they said, he's saying what he's saying because there's a demon in him. Jesus noted that he himself was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he'd go into the homes of the tax collectors and he'd eat and drink with them and they'd say, this guy can't be the one we're going to follow. He associates with all the wrong people. But then he adds this phrase, but wisdom is proved right by her actions. What he meant was, when you see the grace of God transforming lives, it proves that God has been at work all along. And God doesn't ask us about our resume from the past and how perfect our lives have been up to the moment that we understand His grace. He asks us to take hold of His grace. And when we take hold of that grace, it gives us a whole new beginning. And people are transformed by that. And what Jesus was pointing to was the transformational work that comes when we take Him up on His promises. Jesus was so clear about His mission that he was willing to be misunderstood, misunderstood by the Pharisees, misunderstood by the religious leaders of his day, misunderstood by many people in our day too, in order to reconcile us to God. What Jesus was after was not the approval of the in crowd of his day. He was after the transformation of hearts and minds when people are aligned with the purposes of God and the grace of God. And no matter how tough your life has been up until this point, if you take hold of the promises of Jesus, He will radically transform the rest of your days and align your heart with the heart of God forever. This is the good news of gospel, the good news that Jesus was willing to be misunderstood for, that you and I might know grace. Let's pray. God, thank you for sending Jesus with such clarity of his purpose and his mission that he was willing to be misunderstood by those who are evaluating by their own standards. Keep recalibrating my mind and my heart, our minds and our hearts, that we will not force our grid on you, but that we will allow you to change the software of how we operate so that we will see through your eyes, so that we will have our hearts changed by your heart, that we will become more like Jesus, 
not in order to enter the kingdom, but rather as evidence they've already brought us into the kingdom. Lord, hear the person who may be coming to you right now and saying, Lord, I identify with John and his doubt. And as I analyze the evidence in the scriptures of who Jesus was, give me the faith to trust him. Give me the faith to believe that no matter how old I am or young, how far my life has been from you or how much I've resisted you or how much I've been in church and just gone through the motions, that you can give me a new start. I put my faith in you. I ask you to cleanse me from all my sins and forgive me for them and allow me to live the rest of my days with a renewed vision and with hope that is anchored in Jesus. Lord, it's in his name that we pray and it's in his name that we continue to worship today and that we go out into the world looking at life with a new perspective because you make us alive on the inside and you give us this whole, whole new start. And so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.